every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs. I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything is going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. Uh, And talking with me today is Teresa Fortier, founder of supportspike.com and producer at vidiotsonline.com, both very James Marsters-centric, which uh, we're going to need to get into. But uh, Teresa, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? Going really well. Thank you for inviting me to join you for this little podcast today. I'm so excited to start talking about Spike and the the narrative of Buffy. I know, right? The show finally gets started. To me, (laughs) finally, Buffy is worth discussing. I'm going to get hate mail for that one. So, um, (laughs) Teresa, really quickly, uh, tell me a little bit about your history with Buffy. Like, how did you first discover the show? When did you start watching? When did you become obsessed? Um, my sister suggested it to me um, shortly after season two started. Um, I, I've actually found most Spike fans from the early seasons were people that started in season two versus season one. Um, and she said, there's this guy on the show who wears leather jackets and eyeliner, and he'll remind you of your best friend from high school. You should give it a try. So I had already missed the first few episodes and I reached out to a couple of friends who I know had watched it and asked if they had any VHS tapes with recordings of the previous Buffy episodes. Oh, the good old days. Yeah. So I, I caught School Hard really quick, absolutely loved it. I'm like, oh, what is this? I, I guess it is not what I expected at all because I had seen the original movie and was afraid the show would be just as campy. And though I enjoyed it as a, a one shot movie, I was afraid it wasn't something I would want to watch every week. Um, and then, you know, I, I watched season one before I watched any other season two episodes. And I was like, eh, do I really want to continue this? <laughs> and then um, I caught a commercial for um, a, another episode that had Spike in it. And I'm like, OK, 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 I'm, I have to do this. I have to get through this. And I have never looked back. I've actually spent um, pretty much the following 20 years obsessed with the show and still surprised to this day that so much of it is a part of my life. You, yeah, we should, we should talk just a little bit about that. Um, it's been 
difficult to schedule this episode because you are a very, very, very busy person. Yes. Um, you know, I, as you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the podcast, I do um, work on Support Spike. I started it um, a couple seasons into Buffy as a, a way to promote James Marsters and the character of Spike and, you know, more airtime and to get him on Angel after Buffy was canceled. And I went to um, probably every convention he appeared at in the U.S. and most in Europe for um, 15 years straight. So that that was a big part of my life for a while. Um, and then through that, I, I also now co-produce a web series with James Marsters and his friend Mark Devine called Vidiots. Um, and then uh, as my new career, I actually I was in fashion design and manufacturing for a little over 20 years. And now I do uh, full-time talent management. So I manage convention appearances, um, help people to book TV episodes and movies and, and things like that. I do marketing and social media. And most of that um, is revolving around actors from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, including uh, Nicholas Brendan, Juliette Landau, Charisma Carpenter. Um, so it's it really has become not only a, an obsessive hobby, but also a, a career. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, all four of those actors, James Marsters, Nicholas Brendan, Juliet Landau, and Charisma Carpenter, uh, have things that we can discuss uh, <laughs> today. Um, so, dang, that's impressive. I will just briefly reiterate, I, I think I've said it on a previous episode of the podcast, but I'll just say again for, for your edification, Teresa, that Spike is actually the character that introduced me to my wife. Um, my, my wife and I met uh, on a spike centric message board called the big bad board, which no longer exists. Mm -hmm. Um, and we actually, I have only met James once. Uh, we met him at dragon con. My, my, at that time, fiance and I met him at dragon con and actually invited him to our wedding. He sadly <laughs> did not show. He did not. Unsurprisingly, he didn't take the invitation, but I did extend the invitation in written and handshake form. <laughs> but uh, anyways he was lovely but he is a, a very kind and wonderful human being yeah okay so uh it's time i can't put it off any longer it's time to give the spoiler warning for our listeners uh, conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast we're going to be exploring the plots characters and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole that means spoilers and lots of them so I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. You'll obviously get so much more out of these discussions if you've actually seen the shows that we're discussing, please. So go do that and um, pause for everybody who's listening to go watch the entirety of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series. And with that out of the way, Teresa, if you're ready, let's go to work. Sounds good. So uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, the most important episode of Buffy, School Hard. Uh, also, uh, that's 203, School Hard, 204, Inca, Mummy Girl, and 205, Reptile Boy. So, yeah, Teresa, why don't you start us off? School Hard. What makes School Hard the most important episode of Buffy ever? A very special that episode was, of Buffy. 
have to be the introduction of Spike, the best character in the history of Buffy's Vampire Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm supposed to be an impartial host on this show, but nobody buys that for a second. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a massive Spike fan, so thank goodness we've reached this point. It takes a lot. I attempted to do my own rewatch um, about two years ago, and I gave up after season one, episode five. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to season two. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Man, now, it's okay. I, listeners of the podcast have heard me say this a few times, but I've been surprisingly invested in uh, season one, these early seasons, these early episodes on this rewatch. I, I've seen them all many times over the years, but um, watching them in binge form like this, I've been surprised at how much... Uh, of the early episodes actually like hold up. Um, I shouldn't be. I mean, there's a reason that this show lasted as long as it did and has the following that it has, but still it's been a little surprising for me to go back. And you mentioned, I think you said episode five of season one, I believe that's never kill a boy on the first date. Is that right? Am I right on that? That is right. Yeah. See, I think I, I don't, I don't blame you for wanting to jump ahead to get to spike, but like never kill a boy on the first date. I feel like was the, the moment in my rewatch where I was like, damn it, season one actually was seriously good. I don't know. I, I've dismissed season one in my memory, but it actually <laughs> But Yeah, and for me, it was more, um, I, I was happy with that episode, but the pack was coming up next, followed by Angel. <laughs> and it was like, okay, I can, I can watch Creepy Xander or I can watch uh, Spike. Let's go to Spike. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, let's talk. What, I think we're both going to have things to say about Creepy Xander, but let's start off with Spike since that's the, that's what brings us here today. Um, I have to say school hard. Um, this episode goes a long way. It does a lot to sort of set up and refine what the show is about to start growing into. There's been a lot of stuff up to this point that, um, a lot of, sort of groundwork laid and many of my guests and I have talked about how some of the stuff that, um, you know, was probably just meant to be one-offs or fillers at this point in the series. Obviously it comes back like the writers bring it back in future seasons, but school hard and the introduction of spike feels like a statement. Um, it, it feels like, you know, the writers planted a flag and said, all right, we're, I mean, Spike even gets the line from now on. We're, we're going to have a little less ritual and a little more fun around here. More fun, yes. And he was absolutely telling the truth. <laughs> so, um, so School Hard was your very first episode. What, I mean, what drew you to Spike? If, um, you, if you didn't initially have the contrast. See, that's one of the big things about Spike is he's such a, 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 I mean, he's a vampire, and uh, so if you believe Prophecy Girl, vampires don't have breath. But he's a breath of fresh air in a series. Um, but you didn't. Yeah, have and anything I still think Angel used that whole breath thing as an excuse for an old person who had no idea how to do CPR. <laughs> no breath means no talking, no smoking. Exactly. Doesn't make sense. Exactly, it drives me crazy. But anyway, so what? What about Spike first again? Um, he just had so much personality walking on screen that very first time. And, you know, when 
when you go and you talk to James and you ask about that, he had a, a very strong theater background and not much television. So he was coming in to the camera and projecting as if he was on a stage. And you felt that. It just had a completely different energy, um, not just from Buffy, which I wouldn't have been able to compare to at that point, but from most television. Um, you could tell he, he was using a different technique. He wasn't really working to the camera. He was working to the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can feel that almost immediately. And it just it felt so different. And I, I kind of um, you know wanted to see more of that and see where it went and how he took it. Because, you know, eventually he, he does really learn how to emote to the camera like crazy. You see so much uh, pain and love and emotion in his face. And for somebody who had been on stage, it's just a very different um, way of acting. And I think from, from that point on, it was just follow this guy and, and figure out what he's doing and, and how it changes how you watch television. Um, and then it just became so much more and so much deep, deeper than that. Yeah. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't considered uh, until you mentioned that, that uh, he's he's doing stage acting and everybody else is doing television acting at that point. Mm-hmm. Except possibly, I mean, I assume, I don't know for, for certain how many of the other actors had previous stage experience. I would imagine probably Anthony Stewart had. Yeah. Has Tony had a lot because he had done, um, you know, London stage quite a bit okay. by this point you know, did Rocky Horror and Jesus Christ Superstar and a bunch of other things. And they ended up, um, you know, Tony and James had a lot of good discussions and and Tony became a mentor for James on how to do um, acting for the camera. But by this point, Tony had had done television as well. Right. So even though he had the background and the skill, he also knew how to work the camera. Right. Which which is good because Giles doesn't provide a lot of opportunity for playing to the back row of a theater. Right. <laughs> Giles is a little more understated than Spike was, but um, yeah. So at this point, for for viewers who had been playing along uh, from the beginning, at this point, Spike is a pretty big paradigm shift. So we go from, uh, I mean, Spike kind of changes the image of vampires. At this point in the series, vampires were kind of static and unchanging. Uh, like the big bad, which again, a term that had not yet been coined on the show, but the big bad prior to this uh, had been the master who was like sealed into one location. He was cut off from the human world. Um, uh, he was kind of an arch villain. He was written of in prose and prophecy kind of. Uh, and he had, you know, a coterie of worshipful minions, whereas Spike... Uh, seems to be is clearly a, a a man of the world. I guess you could say he clearly travels. I mean, he's coming to Sunnydale from Prague, mm-hmm. um, and he enjoys experience and variety. And uh, he's energetic and impulsive, and clearly disrespectful of any kind of authority. So he's a complete <laughs> he's a complete shift from what we've come to expect from like the big bad vampires on this series. Yeah, and in a lot of ways dangerous to the, the story Joss was trying to tell of vampires being equal to the the bad parts of your life and the demons that you want to slay and move on from. So, you know, knowing that the character was only supposed to be there for a few episodes and that, um, you know, Drusilla and Angel were supposed to kill him and be the 
the big bads, it's, it's amazing that that character that was a throwaway for a few episodes that had so much personality ended up being there to the, the end of Buffy, the end of Angel, and now still going strong in the comic books. Um, and, and just, you know, really being a, a powerhouse character and completely against the, the paradigm that Joss was trying to present. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, you probably have a lot more information available <laughs> uh, <laughs> on this, but I wonder how much, like, if Spike got away from him, from Joss, yeah. if Spike got away from the creators, because I, this is another thing that I've either hinted at or explicitly spoken about on previous episodes, but over the course of this series, I grew more and more kind of uncomfortable with the portrayal of of the black and white good and evil aspects right. of the Whedonverse. Uh, and the Whedonverse, I mean, they, they, they blur the lines intentionally in many spots, but it's, it felt like Spike was a harder sell on a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he, he completely, uh, sort of shook up the status quo, uh, certainly for me and I, and for several, many other fans, but, like you mentioned Drusilla. So Spike, obviously at this point in the series, he's, it's a package deal. It's Spike and Drew. Uh, right. me, me and Drew were moving in. Um, <laughs> and uh, although this episode doesn't really comment on it explicitly, um, we've been told many times at this point in the series that vampires are not human. There is no humanity left in them. Uh, this will eventually in the series be explained like they'll they'll dive deep into the whole notion of being soulless like without a soul you have no conscience you have no uh you know remorse or or sympathy or whatever and here you have spike and drew who as warped as it may be is clearly a quote-unquote loving <laughs> like committed relationship this is a completely different sort of um vampire personality yes you have you know a, a broken psyche and mm. you have kind of a codependent relationship you have someone who just wants to love someone and you have someone who just needs to be taken care of and a lot of dynamics going on between them and their family and their past and the the mix of not having the soul and the conscience and the guilt but also having the love and the devotion and the memories and now that does become more and more complex as the seasons move along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure how intentional it was. Like, I, I don't know how much of the character of Spike at this point, at least, was meant to be a, a shakeup. As I mean, obviously, it's meant to be something of a shakeup because that's the, <laughs> that's the role the character serves in the episode specifically. Right. But. Um, in terms of the grand ideas behind what vampires are and what they're capable of and all that. Um, yeah, and it, it really wasn't meant to be that way because, you know, um, Joss had to be talked into having Angel by uh, David Greenwald because mm -hmm. he didn't want a, you know, a good vampire. Um, and then to have a, another vampire come in with any kind of complexity was a hard sell for Joss. And I think um, if it hadn't been, you know, he, he obviously doesn't cave to pressure often, mm -hmm. but 
ratings are good and money is good and you, you have fans who are suddenly, um, you know, very, very interested, more people coming in, more networks saying, hey, this character is getting a lot of attention. Um, and then, you know, you have James who, you know, obviously I, I have heard speak probably more than anyone else from the show, but when he came on, there's some things in the script that were meant to not be as um, loving and filled with devotion um, of him, like making fun of Drusilla and saying bad things about her. But the way that he said it was intentionally said in a way that was loving. So she's talking about the moons and the stars and you see the love in his eye and the exasperation at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's not how the words were written, but that's how he played it. He, he played that love and played that devotion because he knew a throwaway villain wasn't going to last very long. And the same thing when he sees Buffy for the first time on the dance floor, he could have played that very predatory, but it was predatory attraction in that scene more than anything. So from the very beginning, you have, um, a script with, with good material. You have an actor who's kind of thinking, I really need to make money to feed my kid. And then you have, you know, editors and directors who are seeing the dailies and choosing which of the takes to use in the episode and taking the ones that have more, more sympathy for the character and more, um, passion in the eyes and, for me, who I think I've seen, uh, you know, multiple dailies for several episodes, and you're like, well, if they really wanted this character to be non-sympathetic at this point, they could have gone with this cut or this cut, right. and instead they went for the ones that were showed him in a better light, and I, I think that had a huge impact on the story. So no matter how many times people say it was meant to be, you know, this was supposed to be a bad scene and this was supposed to be a dangerous scene, they still picked the sympathetic cut. Yeah. So on the podcast, many times I've uh, alluded to my my problems with the series as it goes on, the, the things that I have issues with. And there, I have issues with several of the characters and, and choices that the show and the characters make in, in later seasons. But really, the big thing, like my big falling out with the series, I still love Buffy. I still love Angel. Um, I love the Whedon verse, so, but in, in as much as I've had a falling out with the series, it was really, <laughs> it was really mostly tied up in Spike and his treatment specifically by the writers in a certain, yeah. in a certain later series that we're going to get to. And this kind of, what you're talking about kind of speaks to that where you're pointing out how the character was written in a slightly less sympathetic way, but the actor his interpretation of it and the editors choosing to favor that interpretation established a certain, what I felt was a certain emotional truth for that character. And I feel in future seasons, the writers try to back out of that and it doesn't feel genuine. Exactly. I and, feel the same. And that really, really frustrated me when, when we finally get to that season, we can talk about that. But in the meantime, um, I'm fascinated to hear. I don't know if I knew that uh, Greenwald was the one who pushed uh, Joss into having Angel in the first place. I assume you mean the character of Angel, not the series of Angel. Correct. I, I, I've read so many things over the years. I must have read that at some point, but I, if I had, I completely forgotten it. So 
I've commented on, uh, like, every time a Greenwald episode comes up, I talk about how Greenwald clearly knows what he wants to do eventually with these characters when he when he someday gets his own damn show to tell stories with. Um, but now I, I mean, that puts even a finer point on it to know that he was so responsible, even for Angel being in the show in the first place. Yeah, it's, you know, Joss had a very specific idea for how Buffy should be. And the fact that, you know, he, he went through getting the movie made and was so dissatisfied with how that was um, manipulated from what he had wanted to pushing to get this series done. And then, you know, just being so protective of the character and the ideas. And then here and there, some parts of the world said, no, make this happen instead. Mm -hmm. And I think it ended up being a better show for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see, what else was I going to comment? Oh, I'm, I was interested to, to notice this time that Spike is the first character, as far as I can remember, um, Spike is the first character in the series to sort of speculate that the Slayer's strength, like the, the power of this particular Slayer, lies in the fact that she has family and friends. Um, which, if I'm not mistaken, up to this point, pretty much everyone has sort of preached that a Slayer needs to sever all ties with with humanity, like they cannot have friends or family or whatever. Attachments will just distract her. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that that is a, that's a theme that the show has been subtly layering. Like, they've obviously been demonstrating that she gets out of scrapes because she allows herself to have friends and allies. Um, but I'm pretty sure Spike's the first one to specifically call that out. Right. So. I mean, I think, um, you know, if, <laughs> it's hard sometimes to separate the fact that it's, it's a fake show. So in your mind um, to, to come up with logical justifications for why something might be. Um, but there's enough evidence in the show to say that there's a reason why the watchers wouldn't want um, Buffy to be an independent mind and to ever reach an age where she can make decisions on her own and, yeah. and all that, which, you know, again, it, it becomes an issue I have with the show over time. Um, the fact that this, this is supposed to be a show about female empowerment. And yet even now <laughs> there's still a male watcher. Um, and, and that it's still just such a, a weird setup when you think back and then just watching all the seasons uh, to know Joss wanted this to be a, a female empowerment show, but to have the whole premise of the show, a young girl who has older men telling her what to do. Right. Uh, this is yeah, she does eventually kind of break through that, but, um, it's still a very complicated situation. Yeah. This is a thing that I'm sure uh, there have been probably multiple essays and, and uh, editorials written about. Um, uh, the Wheaton Studies Association is probably yes. lit littered with, with this kind of thing. But I just want to ask the question if, um, because you just talked about, it's a show about female empowerment, but there is still a male watcher involved. Um, it, it, I wonder if 
the part of the success story of the character of Buffy Summers as a slayer is because her watcher, like we see other watchers. I mean, Wesley is his own thing. When we get to Wesley, he's he he is and kind of becomes something else. But if I'm not mistaken, most of the other watchers that we're ever given insight into, um, they're very they're they're very male. They're very like masculine and domineering. Whereas yeah. the I mean, Giles, it's still a man. He's still a male in a, a position of authority over our female slayer. But in terms of masculinity, he's a little bit downplayed. Like Giles is coded as slightly more effeminate than the typical macho male. I, ju I just wonder, like, that's a thing that I feel like there must be essays about out there. <laughs> um, anyways, I don't know where I was going with that, but... Um, so what do you make? Uh, we need to talk about we need to talk about the the line that created so many con so much controversy and debate, uh, possibly even to this day, when uh, when but when uh, Spike and Angel meet on camera for the first time, and uh, Spike gets so upset and he was like, "You were my sire, man. You were my Yoda." Um, so I distinctly remember in sort of in the fan communities and message boards um that stirred up so much debate <laughs> over the years about uh be because spoiler alert the show eventually reveals that uh whatever you may think sire means in in the buffy verse it doesn't necessarily mean that um angel did not actually in the uh in the Anne rice uh form of the the verb did not actually sire spike so what do you make of that? There are, there are multiple interpretations of that, and I think Joss has come in and tried to clarify it, but what do you make about that one? That one is actually relatively easy for me to dismiss because you, anyone who watches this show knows that Lucilla is a very broken person. Right. And saying, you know, because this is a show about families and that, you know, Drusilla and Angel and Darler are considered a family. Basically, Angel is the one that raised him as a vampire. Angel yeah. was the one who taught him. Angel was the sh one that showed him how to kill, how to hunt, how to make artistry. Mm -hmm. um, and just the fact that he said, you, you, you were the person who I looked to as my mentor mm -hmm. can easily be explained explained as you're my sire, you are my Yoda. I mean, they're, they're two different things. You're the person who trained me. You're the person I, I followed. You, you are essentially my dad. Right. Regardless of who the person is who actually turned me. Yeah. Um, other fans have said, you know, maybe you know, Drusilla started the process and then Angel finished draining him because Drusilla was just too weak or whatever. They're getting more complicated, I think, than it needs to be. I, I don't, rem I, I I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. Is that a thing that actually happens? I can't remember the scene. No, it's it's not on screen, but it's, okay. it's one of those Stan Wank things that okay. um, people use. And a lot of times people want to come up with the easiest or the most complicated reason why something happens. And, and I just see that as being a mentor role. Yeah. So even back then, um, I remember that it, it's the second line that really like gives it away because I... I was an Anne Rice. I had read all sorts of vampire fiction and films, and the the term sire carries a certain connotation with it. And so, 
Like, if he had just said, you were my sire man, I, I would have seen what the debate was. But the second, mm -hmm. the second line of that is what gives it away, you were my Yoda. So he, that's him explicitly saying, like, Yoda didn't create uh, Luke Skywalker. Right. <laughs> like, he just trained him. So that, that was my interpretation as well. That it was right. it was more a case of um, he learned how to be a vampire uh, under Angel's tutelage. So, anyways, don't know why it needed to be twenty years of controversy, but there it is. <laughs> no, I have I have a bigger issue with the Watchers saying that Spike is two hundred years old. Yeah, right. They're not very good at their research job. <laughs> yeah, we 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 learn how unreliable some of Giles's books can be. Yes. Um. Uh, again, this is this is some of that leeway that I've talked about on previous episodes where we have to grant uh, the show. Uh, we're getting into season two, so some of this, some of this, uh, you know, leeway. I think I need to start pulling back, but certainly in the first season, and we're only a few episodes into the second season, so some of this is just that you know the writers are kind of feeling their way along, and they may change their mind later, whatever. But um, yeah, when I feel like as we're getting into the second season, they have a sense that this show is going to last. Like season one, they didn't know if they were going to get any more. Right. Um, but now they have a sense that maybe the show is going to keep going and they're starting to lay down specifics. When you start giving numbers, like putting numbers and equations into the thing, you need to, you need to be careful. And if they're, if they're going to state in one episode that he's, he's 200 years old, well, come on, stick to that, guys. You know? <laughs> But they don't. They change nope. their mind later. At any rate. <laughs> I guess uh, Jenny Callender would just say that, uh, you know, books are unreliable, maybe. <laughs> he needs to read something. So electronics needs... are exactly much more reliable these days. Either, exactly, so. exactly. But I, I believe it's, uh, I think it's this episode. I think it's School Hard where she says, read something published after 1066. <laughs> uh, anyways. So I, I do not want to stop talking about Spike, and there's more to discuss, but there were other characters in this episode, so. Oh, darn. <laughs> I don't I know. think I are any of them. <laughs> well, I, I want to, okay. The next character I had a note about here is Joyce, actually. Um, mm -hmm. Joyce has been famously on this podcast a contentious character, or a, a point of contention. Maybe not necessarily, because I think everybody has agreed that she's been a, sort of a problematic character up to this point. Yes. Um, and this episode uh, tries to deal with a little of that because the sort of her character arc across the episode is she finally gets to see, you know, that Buffy can take care of herself and she, she sticks up for her daughter. Um, not only like verbally to Principal Snyder, but she takes a fire axe to the back of Spike's skull. <laughs> um, however, early in the episode, there's the there's a really like teeth grating moment for me when she sits down with Buffy and lays that horrible guilt trip on her about you know we've already had to uproot our lives once because of you mm -hmm. and. And Buffy's like, I know, Mom, you don't want to have to move again. And she's like, no, I don't want to be disappointed about uh, disappointed in you again. I was like, geez, Joyce, come on. <laughs> Lighten up a little bit, Mom. Did you think that was particularly, I don't know, harsh? Um, 
you've got a, a character in Buffy who has hidden everything about her life from her parents. All her parents know is that she has gotten in trouble at school. She's burned a school down. She's gone out with questionable guys. Now, that school thing, that they said that could have been mice. Come on. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, in the grander picture of what the parent would know and what she's been through and that she's gone through a divorce and, and everything else, and knowing what I know of some parents having the ability to be disappointed in their children. Um, I, I think from the reality side of things, it, it's not that far out of bounds that she would be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hate it. So you know, it's yeah. try, trying to be fair and, and trying to also at the same time, um, you know, know, knowing the reality, it, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a difficult line to hear. Yeah. I, I think most kids at one point or another have had the parents give them the look. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, no, and it's, it's hard at this age too, to, to start seeing your child as a grown up adult making decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad that they do get to the point where that does happen, but I, I totally get where Joyce is coming from at that point based yeah. on the knowledge that she has and, and the situations that she's gone through. Yeah. That, no, that's completely fair. Um, I still cringe when I'm watching that, but that's because I am far removed from being a teenager <laughs> and I, and I don't have kids. So I'm, yeah. I'm not a parent. So um, <laughs> I'm saying, you know, I don't have kids. I, I actually, I raised my brother and sister when I was a child because yeah. I, I had parental situations and, uh, you know, having been the adult as a child, when I finally did at 18 decide to do something childish, the the look on my dad's face of disappointment at the age of 18 yeah. was quite the shock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, you know, it, it resonates and it's painful to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it's I, I really do hate watching that part. Yeah. I mean. As I said in this in this episode, I mean, she Joyce gets the sort of the the mini arc where she gets to go from that uh, not wanting to be disappointed in her daughter or whatever like that really really uncomfortable moment at the beginning to the end where she's like completely supportive and and uh, you know knocks out a, a gang member on PCP with a fire axe. <laughs> to save her daughter. But anyways, uh, you know, so I give her points for that. Although uh, another minor issue I've had with the series at this stage is that these sort of character growth moments that sometimes happen triumphantly by the end of an episode kind of fade away over the next couple of episodes. So Joyce is great in this episode by the end, but she really quickly goes back to being the sort of clueless and, and nagging mother that she's been. Yep. Previously, but yeah. whatever, <laughs> it's fine. It sets up great scenes in the future. Yeah. So yeah. Um. So, uh, what did we get? I don't think. Don't think there was any significant Xander stuff in the, this episode. I think maybe we have to get to the next one. Um. 
for any significant Xander. So before we kind of move on to this episode, oh, well, obviously we learned that Principal Snyder is not just another clueless adult. <laughs> we, we discover that uh, not all adults in this series are completely blind to the, to the obvious supernatural stuff that's going on. Right. Um, I mean, that there's a little issue I have with, um, you know, him, Principal Snyder, and and knowing what's going on. But then I I never feel like we get a good payoff on mm-hmm. that. I, I feel like there needed to be more than um, than what happens with his character and his knowledge of what was going on, um, which you know, future episodes obviously. But um, it was a great character. Mm-hmm. And a good foil for Buffy, far better than our um, pig meat from the earlier. <laughs> see, um, see, I adored Flutie, and I was really, <laughs> I was really sad. And as I've discussed before, um, really troubled by the ultimate fate <laughs> of Flutie. Uh, but it, it did provide a great opportunity for um, like a complete shift. Just like Spike is a complete shift from Angel. Um, Snyder is a completely different character from Flutie. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I felt you know that that was a really good setup with a, a very small payoff. I felt they could have done more. With yeah, this. I don't. I don't remember specifics of what, like all the details of what happens to uh, Snyder over the course of the next few seasons, but. Uh, I, I do feel like the <laughs> this sort of setup that he's in in collude in collusion with uh, police chief Bob to cover up all these details. I didn't feel like that really ever kind of pays off in any meaningful yeah. way. Yeah, I suppose it. I, I don't like. I don't remember if it specifically um, ties into the mayor, but I suppose thematically that sort of sets the stage for the character that of the mayor that we're eventually going to meet. But exactly. Anyways. Um, all right. Yeah. So what else? Uh, the episode's called uh, School Hard, and I can only assume that that's meant to be a reference to the movie Die Hard. <laughs> do, we, do we know this for certain? Have you ever heard this? I have not heard either way, but that's also what I just always uh, yeah. associated it with. A group of terrorists take over a building, and our hero yep. has to crawl through the ductwork. Crawl through the ducts, and yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So, which I love, Dyer. They should have done. They should have saved this episode for Christmas. It should have been a Christmas episode. Come on, yeah. If you're going Christmas night, I guess if if any holiday happens in school, though, I, I guess uh, that makes. You, oh, good point. Good point. <laughs> good point. Couldn't couldn't have done that. Uh, all right. Well, I guess. I feel like we need to say more about Drew. Um, I don't know. Have, have we given Drusilla short shrift? Is there um, anything else we need to say about her? Yeah, I, I think she really becomes more important once we understand her connection to Angel. Uh-huh. Here she's just, um, you know, a, a little wacky. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a good a good introduction to the couple. One scene that always, um, you know, when, when I think back at the, this episode, that the point where she is talking to Spike and then rakes her nail down his cheek. Right. Yeah. And he's got the bloodline there. And then you see them matching 
um, paint line on Buffy's face. Thank you. <laughs> Thank um, you for pointing that out. So that, you know, obviously that was not something that was put there intentionally for us to talk about 20 years later as being a significant thing. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if they meant to have that um, be something on screen and, and have an echo between those two scenes. But when you go and look back years later as to um, you know, the connection between Spike and Buffy and the similarities and um, just things that they've gone through and their connection later on and becoming a couple, um, that's still the, the scene in that episode that I remember the most. Um, and, and not even just the, the parallel between um, the red marks on their faces, but also just the interaction between um, Drusilla and Spike and that caring look on his face and the needy look on her face mm -hmm. and the fact that he's in charge but will do anything that she tells him to do and, and the dynamics of the relationship it's just really obvious in that scene yeah yeah I'm glad I'm so glad that you mentioned that I had that in my notes I completely skipped over it um, this I, I'm almost positive I never really clued in on that on any previous watch of this episode but this time i like i like sat up in my chair when that came on it's like you've got to be kidding with right? the whole paint smear on her cheek that's ridiculous and then you already you already talked about the scene when he first sees her in the bronze and again you mentioned that the character was written a certain way and that uh, james marsters sort of performs him a slightly different way and that contributes to where this character is going so I, I doubt that it was intended to read like this in the episode, but when he's sort of stalking her in the bronze, um, knowing where this character is going, knowing where both of these characters are going and where their story is going, that was really charged. That was a super like charged moment. So much so that it is, it's difficult for me to believe that they didn't intend for that to be him falling in love with the Slayer. I mean, do you, what do you think? Have you heard otherwise? Or, or do you think that it was, that that's complete coincidence and that's just me reading too much into it? Or do you think that that scene was meant to imply that he was, he was at least forming a, a, a kind of attraction to that character? I know it was not intentional. Okay. All right. Part of the writers or Joss. I know it was intentional on the part of James. Okay. All right. Well, God bless you, James. Thank you so much <laughs> for introducing so much pain and struggle into our damn lives. <laughs> yes, and for, you know, making us still talk about it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that was a super powerful moment. Um, so it, really it doesn't surprise me that you tell me that was not actually intentional, but damn it, it's so hard to watch that and not think that they knew where this right. was well, going. If you think about it, I, I think the universe intended it, if right. that makes you feel any better. Um, yeah, no, I'm... I, I'm down for that. <laughs> this was always meant to be. Um, so I guess before we move on, we obviously have to mention that the other sort of paradigm shift, the other big kick in the status quo that Spike provides is he just dusts the damn annoying one. Yes. Thank thankfully. Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> now I, I had read that that was the decision to get rid of that character was mostly motivated by the fact that that actor, his voice was starting to change. 
Yeah. And they and couldn't have an ageless child vampire uh, played by an actor who was about to hit puberty. But yeah, and and, and Andrew Firstland's a, a very lovely human being. I've I've been to a couple of conventions with him and was at um, San Diego Comic Con last year. The the mm -hmm. actor that played the Anointed One isn't he? Um, isn't he a it, isn't he a director now? Doesn't he direct? He he's done a few projects and um, he's uh, he still is pretty baby faced too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but a, a child can only stay a child for so long, and it definitely was not a, a good logistical choice to have that character, especially um, over a few months hiatus. So the fact that they decided to do that so quickly was great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that's. Uh... What is this? This is the only the third episode of the second season, and they've already um, they brought the master back, sort of, or they implied that they could bring the master back, and then that was quickly done away with. They're like, nope, mas we're done with the master, and but they kept the anointed one around, and so viewers were like, oh, well, I guess this is going to be the the villain of the season. <laughs> nope, apparently nope. not. So at this point in the show, we're still not entirely sure what we're what we've got for a bad guy, which is great. I like that. Um, all right. So Inca mummy girl, I guess, are we ready to move on to this? I think so. Um, this is another one, uh, another episode, actually both of these following, uh, Inca mummy girl and reptile boy. Uh, as I've said before on the show, there are certain episodes that my foggy memory of, I, I feel like they're really sort of trivial or, skippable or whatever and so as i'm going back in this rewatch i'm i'm i've been consistently surprised at the episodes that i think of as just sort of oh who cares i don't need to watch inca mummy girl there's actually good stuff in it so um obviously i think one of the best things that we get out of inca mummy girl is it's our first it's our introduction to oz yeah <laughs> thank god thank god i had forgotten how long it took oz to make an appearance I know he was so iconic and he just wove himself in so seamlessly mm -hmm. that it's, it's really hard to believe the character wasn't there from the beginning and didn't stay till the end. Yeah. Oh, Oz, I love you so much. We don't get much of him in this, but, uh, thank God he's finally on the scene. Um, oh, I wanted to, as we start discussing Inca Mummy Girl, I wanted to point out this little bit of trivia that I uh, pieced together. So the whole mummy as monster idea, unlike vampires who had been around in uh, folklore and, and literature for centuries, um, the mummy as monster is something that comes, I think, I'm pretty sure it comes explicitly from films. Like originally the there was the 1932 Universal film, The Mummy. Mm-hmm which featured Boris Karloff and Boris Karloff's real name was William Pratt. Yep. Which we gradually learn over the course of the series and, and the comics. Um, William Pratt is actually Spike's real name. Mm-hmm. That can't possibly be a coincidence. <laughs> it, it was intentionally done in the comic books. It was never mentioned on okay. the show. Right. Um, so it, it was added later on specifically for the comic books as a callback to Boris Karloff. But it, I'm, I'm not necessarily a big fan of that last name because Pratt also isn't right. necessarily a, a 
um, positive word. <laughs> right. But man, um, it is what it is, and <laughs> I I try to adhere to canon as often as I can. And if I'm going to accept the comic books as canon, then I'm accepting that Spike's real human name was William Pratt. <laughs> well, now here's the thing: we could have a whole long discussion on the the canon of the comics. I I am not a fan of the comics. I did not make it past season eight. Um, you have to. You have to. Um, I was not a fan of the comics. I hated season eight. I just it it did not feel like Buffy at all. To yeah. Me. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan. I've been a comic collector my entire life i've been collecting comics for over 40 years at this point and uh and i sort of keep tabs i i keep up more or less with the the rough idea of what's going on in the comics um, yeah but i'm typically not a fan of tie-in merchandise anyways like virtually any film or television show that i love if there are tie-in novels or comics that follow it i i almost never get into those for whatever reason i uh, even the even the best written comics i'm like yeah this isn't the show so i recognize i, I was that never a comic book fan at all I, I was not somebody who purchased them and i was hoping that buffy would kind of be my my entryway into it and so i did buy season eight and and i you know i say suffered through and i think that's probably an accurate description um and then i i skipped season nine i i just couldn't go on and then someone said you know Buffy and Spike get together in season 10 and all of these issues are being addressed so I, I sat down and I started re reading season 10 and season 10 feels so much like Buffy it's so complex um, it gets into really deep issues it addresses a lot of the things that I had issues with in in Buffy season six and seven um, Christos Gage who who writes Buffy seasons 10 11 and 12 um, and, and Nicholas Brendan, who also co-wrote several issues of Buffy season 10, um, really, really understood the show and the dynamics and the things that fans had issues with. And um, I would have to say probably if, if I were ranking Buffy seasons, I, I would put um, Buffy season 10 comics probably you know, really high in my ranking of, of the best official Buffy seasons wow. um, and it, it it's really hard for me to say that but um, well I'm really really good I, I have suspected more than once as I've been doing this podcast that at a certain point the subject of the comics is going to come up so much and especially as we get into later seasons of the series um, that I, I was I was going to end up being forced to re revisit the comics i didn't intend to at this moment i'm not intending to but i i'm gradually uh becoming more open to the possibility that that is the thing that will happen before this podcast is over no, no, i have i have some pretty bad ocd yeah. and and i have a really hard time starting a series anywhere except the first episode mm -hmm. i have a really hard time skipping seasons and episodes mm -hmm. so the fact that I skipped season nine comics in order to read season 10 and enjoyed it um, is really difficult on my brain. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, I still have not felt the urge to go back and read season nine, though um, I, I know at some point I will. 
Uh, and, and the only reason I was able to actually watch Buffy after school hard was because somebody had VHS tapes of season one. Otherwise, I would have said, oh, this is great. Maybe a few years from now, I'll right. watch the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I highly recommend if, if you can get through eight and nine, try, but definitely read season 10. All right. All right. I will. I'm, I'm adding it to my list of, of possible things okay. <laughs> on uh I do another podcast, The Avatar Returns, which is all about Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. And both of those series had finite runs, and they both continued afterwards in official, like, canon comic book series. And when I started the podcast, I had no intention of covering the comics. And then gradually, um, my co-hosts and I decided, well, we can't talk about the show and then not talk about the comics, so... That may be where this podcast is headed to. Who knows? Um, but anyways, back to the show. Back to the episode yeah. that we're here to talk about. So uh, what do you make of the... Uh, I mean, let's talk about the obvious parallels between Buffy and Ampata, the uh, the mummy here. Uh, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty on the nose, but I think it's worth discussing. Okay. Yeah, you know, being a, a chosen one, it's uh, is is not an easy thing, no matter what the circumstances are. When you have those kind of responsibilities put on you at a young age, and and your your life is is going to be short, and still going out there and and you know fighting it as much as you can, but still doing your duty and 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 saving people. Um, it's it's a tough life to know that you got to live. Yeah. Um, a, a thing that the show has has mentioned a few times before this, but like this episode really puts a spotlight on it, really lampshades the whole idea that um, being a chosen like there, there's probably not going to be a happy end to the life of a young girl who is a chosen one yes. like this. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. And, and I was, uh, I liked the fact that uh, even at the end, Buffy managed to have some empathy for that character. Uh, that's another thing that kind of happens that the show does from time to time. I think uh, maybe more often than not that I struggled with over the years is that even the most sympathetic of villain at the end of the episode, they were the villain and deserved to be staked or burned or whatever, <laughs> however yeah. you dispatch them. And there's not often a lot of sort of uh, empathy uh, applied to the villain, no matter what their life circumstances were. And so this was an instance where even after she had, even after they had to fight her and even after she almost killed Xander and was almost uh, Willow's first girl on girl kiss, um, <laughs> that uh, there was still, Buffy still expressed some empathy and understanding for the character. Yes. So that was cool. Yep. Um, Let's talk about Xander. Okay. I'm going um, to open that up for you. Let's talk about Xander. Yeah. And you know, it, it's a really difficult topic for me for many reasons. Um, be, everybody comes to Buffy with their own background and their own life story and their own sympathies and, um, you know, various people on the show some people consider to be their avatars, um, the person that most 
represents them and their life and how they think. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was always Spike, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of the person who's who loves something or somebody and is so devoted that they spend like all their time and their thoughts doing everything that they can to fix that or make that happen or to help that person. Um, and so when Spike loves, I love, and when Spike hurts, I hurt. Um, and for me, the person I always felt hurt Spike the most, it was Xander. And so I always had a really hard time with the character of Xander. Um, especially I, I felt he was hypocritical in so many ways. Um, and also knowing that Xander was Joss's avatar on the show, he's meant to represent him and, and, um, kind of be the normal person. When I think about the show and I think about, you know, it's it's Buffy the vampire slayer. So what are the key elements? You have to have Buffy and you have to have vampires, but you also have to have the normal human person that grounds it. So to me, the, the most important people on the show end up being Buffy, Xander, and the big bad, the, the reason why Buffy has to slay. Mm-hmm. And Buffy has to slay the norm, the, the big bad in order to save the normal human being. Um, so even though I love the character of Willow and really should be my avatar because in school I was the nerdy person who didn't fit in, who wore the weird clothes and, and did awkward things, um, there were just elements about the character that I didn't connect with and eventually, um, you know, grew to, to not really like a lot of aspects of Willow's character. It was Xander that I just always felt was um, kind of just, you know, he he made bad judgments and he kept information from Buffy and other people that was key at various points in time yeah. um he, he did some bad things that he got passes for that he then judged other people for doing exactly the same thing yes. um, so it, it it's tough for me to talk about um any xander stuff in a good way at the same time i i represent nicholas brendan for work and i <laughs> oh he's also a complex human being and you have to remember that these are are characters who are meant to be complex and they're being played by people who are also complex and, and life has a lot of twists and turns. And, um, it's, it's put me in a a very interesting position when I try to go back and watch Buffy episodes now. And I try to look at it from, there was the naivete of watching the show the first time through. Uh, There was the critical eye of, of watching it through the lens of knowing what was going on in the background and reading shooting scripts and um, seeing dailies and um, commentaries and things like that. And then now this additional element of knowing most of the actors as people that are parts of my life. Um, So (laughs) anytime that I start talking about a character or person now, I try to step back and think about, um, the things that have informed their life that has them become who they are today or who they were on the show. And when you think about what Xander had to go through in his life and um, the parents and the abuse and um, the, you know, having his best friend be killed by a vampire and well, you know, worse than being killed. Right. Um, Although, I mean, I mean, I'm not. 
I'm not debating anything that you say, but I just, I just <laughs> want to remind listeners that uh, we always think of Jesse as being this really traumatic moment for Xander and Willow, but they got over that super fast. <laughs> like they were upset that he had been turned into a vampire for all of like 15 minutes. And then he's, uh, as far as I know, he's never freaking mentioned again. <laughs> I'm going to put that down to shock. Okay. That's yeah, fair. They were That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very valid point, but um, it, it's just, it's it really becomes difficult to sympathize with the character of Xander over the years because of a lot of that hypocritical um stuff that ends up happening over time and the judgments that he makes. And, you know, he, he says he's there for Buffy and there's so many times where he's not, where he's mm -hmm. judging her and being disappointed in her and looking down on her because she's not making the decisions he wants her to make. And yet in almost every circumstance, she made the right call mm -hmm. and he never really acknowledges that either. So my wife and I were talking about this last night. She knew I was going to be discussing these sort of Xander heavy episodes and she knows that on this rewatch I'm having, I'm struggling more with Xander than I remember struggling um, on previous yeah. watches. Uh, and so we were talking and, and we were both talking about how at least some of this, um, probably a lot of this, probably a lot of the issues I'm having with Xander on this rewatch come from, uh, this is a character who was written and portrayed 20 years ago. And there's been a lot of dialogue. There's been a lot of discourse over uh, character archetypes and and you know character traits and stuff like that in the in the intervening years. So we view the like my wife referred to him as the nice guy, the nice guy character or the lovable loser character. Yeah. Um, you know that that character archetype had a certain cachet in '97 that it might not necessarily have in 2018. Uh, and so it's difficult to watch stuff uh, from that time period without viewing it through the lens, you know, the lens that we have now. Um, that is certainly some of it. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that's some of it. Um, some of it for me is also, I know where the characters go. Like the character has serious issues in later seasons that I have never gotten over. And I apply those to my viewing of him at the beginning of the series. Now I can't help it. Um, but then I'm also, and this is the thing I was talking to my wife about last night. I was like, you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of this is, uh, it was a different time or whatever, but it is so weird to, <laughs> to, to realize that at the time, when I was watching this stuff as it aired, it didn't, I don't remember it bothering me. I don't remember noticing. Yeah. I don't remember I don't noticing at the time. About a lot of it. Yeah, I don't remember noticing at the time, for example, that Xander never shuts up about <laughs> other guys being getting anywhere near Buffy. He never <laughs> shuts up about it. it. It's not like a one-off joke that happens every other episode. It is every, literally every episode, and he never yeah. shuts the hell up about it. And, right. and at the time, I don't remember that being annoying, but now I'm like, oh, for God's sake, Xander, let and, it go, man. The only person in all of this that he ever supports is Riley, and I can't imagine a worse relationship for Buffy. Right. <laughs> well, now I'm going to have some things to say about Riley when we get to that, but, uh, but <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, uh, all of these characters, I love the fact that you talked about how like all of these characters are meant to be 
like complex characters and they are written by a, presumably complex writers and they are performed by <laughs> complex actors. So, um, yeah. And everyone's bringing their piece and as they're bringing their piece and the universe is deciding the ultimate way that all of it gets fit together and then how we're going to interpret it, it, it just, there, there's a reason why this show is still being talked about now. Yeah. yeah. And there's a reason why even back then academic journals and college level courses were being created to discuss it. And, and what's being taught then I'm sure um, is very different from what's being taught now and the perceptions of the shows and the actions and the episodes are very different. Mm-hmm. Um but still just as complex. And I, I think that the lens of how we're looking at it today um, just kind of adds to the, the complexity of, of the whole, the whole thing. So it, it just, the fact that it stands out and the fact that we are still talking about the same issues, but through a different lens, it's, it's just amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, this episode, I, um, I was going to say introduces, but I don't think it. I don't think this is the introduction. This continues the trend of Xander being uh, drawn to monsters. <laughs> I mean, he's already lusted after a, a teacher who is a giant giant praying mantis, which gets a hilarious callback in this episode <laughs> when he asks her if she's actually a praying mantis. But I just think it's interesting uh, that Xander. Xander clearly has a type and his type is uh, women who have uh, some sort of secret monstrous dark nature. Yeah. And, and that also applies to Buffy. Which yeah, we eventually yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah. Um, and again, uh, talking about the hypocrisy, uh, believable, understandable or not, whatever <laughs> of Xander uh, is that um, he, he never, as far as I know, he never really lets up on Buffy for her various vampire paramours. Like he never lets up on the fact that she is attracted to vampires. Buffy season 10. Uh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> uh, in, in what I have read and observed, that has never happened. Uh, but here he is basically falling in love for a vampire. I mean, of, of yeah. a sort. Yep. He, you know, the, the things that he, he judges people most harshly, on tend to be the things that he himself is guilty of. Which, and, is, which you know, is realistic, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the whole projection thing for, mm-hmm. for those who follow that <laughs> particular thought process. Yeah. And then, you know, as Joss's avatar, <laughs> to, again, to bring the reality into things, um, it, it's just the complexity, the layer on layer of the actor, the writer, and the character. Uh, there, there's... I'm sure a lot there that can be discussed that is probably more um, complex than we can go into in this podcast, but it's it's definitely a theme that goes from the very beginning to the very end for, for Xander where he, you know, he, he really does not only um, he's guilty of the hypocrisy, but to a very strong degree. So it's, probably that the hatred of himself that we see even in faith when faith is punching Buffy with her own face mm-hmm, yeah. and she's really punching herself. Yeah. Um, 
that self-awareness though never really happens uh mm-hmm. for Xander on the shows that are broadcast where i think it a lot of the other characters they do come to realize that spike being a, a major one buffy on occasion though again she does tend to um kind of backslide on that um willow i think comes to that realization after um her descent into darkness and i i sometimes wonder if if that would have been the turning point for xander but because he's supposed to be the human being he never does have that um chance to truly descend into darkness yeah to get that self-awareness yeah um yeah uh so I try really hard to be self-aware and uh, I'm sure I fail far more often than I succeed, but I try to be self-aware and avoid sort of being hypocritical about this kind of stuff. So you just, you just mentioned faith, you name dropped faith, a character, which yes. we have has not been introduced on the show yet, but goes on to become one of my all time favorite characters. Um, and I, uh, I get, <laughs> here's my hypocrisy i give i love the character arc of faith i like adore virtually everything about faith and the story that is told with her and where she ultimately goes and all that and i i am empathetic and sympathetic and understanding of so much of what goes on with that character and you there are parallels to be made between her and xander and i'm for some reason i'm so much less like i struggle so much more with xander than i do with with faith (laughs) so this is a thing that I'm going to try and be aware of going forward. I want my listeners, if you, if any of my listeners are future guests on this show, please help me, please help call me out for this. I don't want to be um, overly judgmental of Xander and then give a pass to <laughs> someone yeah. later down the line. So, But again, it's like, like I said, I think you never saw the self-awareness that faith definitely comes to after, you know, after that, and then going to Angel, and then Angel helping her, and going to jail, and mm-hmm. even when uh, Buffy's entire friends and family are going against her in season seven to go back to the the winery, which again, spoilers. Um, Faith is hesitant to take over. She knows that Buffy's the leader, and she realizes after everything goes haywire, you know what? This is not a position that I'm ready for. And I, I understand this and I know this. And I think that came so much from, from her hitting rock bottom, you know, mm-hmm. that, that great term. And um, that was not something like, it's hard to have that sympathy for Xander because he didn't hit the rock bottom and he didn't have the, you know, kind of the switch turn on on his head where, okay, now I get it. And I see what I did wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because he's, he's just the everyday guy. He's just going on with his life. And I, I think so many people, do just keep going on and the next thing hits you before you have a chance to process the first thing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's, uh, I, there's not a ton to say, I guess, about, uh, Inca mummy. Girl. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think where we started with the, the parallels between Empata and Buffy is, is really the main point here that, yeah. that sometimes people are chosen and, and they have a role in life and you can, uh, realize when that role is over and and let your life end or you can decide that you're gonna keep trying to recapture that glory yeah. or and at, you know at what point are you putting other people in danger in order to save yourself and like I, I honestly would have rather have seen her sacrifice herself um, rather than the way things went down but mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean I, so, 
Okay, I don't want to drag this out any longer than we have to, but I will just ask, do you think it's possible to read um, her final moments as she was... So she obviously had a couple of opportunities to feast on Xander, uh, and right. she, and she uh, you know, pushed away. Yeah. At the end there, when it looks like Buffy comes up, it looks like Xander is holding her away from him, and then Buffy comes over and rips her away. I was, I'm wondering if there's a way to read that where uh, Empata was actually stopping herself. Like, if she wasn't going full out, if she was, like, her life was obviously draining away. She was withering on camera, and yeah. I don't know, I... I I think it is conceivable that you could read that scene as she chose not to, at, at least not fight as hard as she could have <laughs> to yeah. drink. And I just, I think the fact that she had connected with Xander, uh-huh. in this case, I don't necessarily think it was struggling with continuing to go on as, do I want to sacrifice this person? Right. No, she would have, in the, in the almost girl-on-girl kiss, she would have yeah. fed off Willow. Exactly. And I think even at that point, if it had been anyone else but him, yeah, that she, she would have gone through with another kiss. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, well, another character that makes his debut in Inca Mummy Girl um, and also pops up in Reptile Boy, so let's move into Reptile Boy, uh, is um, Danny Strong as Jonathan. Yay, Danny. And boy, am I going to have some things to say about the character of Jonathan as this series goes <laughs> forward. Yes. Um, and again, a very lovely human being and mm-hmm. a very complex character and backslides and all sorts of things going on there. Well, I think most of what I'm going to have to say about Jonathan is sympathetic to Jonathan. I, yeah, I, I, I struggle. I, I struggle much more with the the abuse that Jonathan receives on camera than I do with like his all like where he ultimately goes i'm really uh bothered by his first two appearances set set the stage for a long ongoing um like just character assassination like he gets so much abuse he really does and you know um when i start talking a lot about um people's avatars on the show and how they connect with certain characters mm-hmm. um you know a lot of people connected with Buffy because Buffy and and Xander and Willow were the outsiders you know, right. they, they were the the ones that were you know bright and funny and saving the world and they oh I am so excited I'm so excited by the possibility that you might be going where I want to go <laughs> go ahead continue um, so you know in the beginning of the show that's where the sympathies lie and a, a lot of people um really connected with those characters in first season. But as the show continued to progress and as they left high school, Buffy and Xander and Willow were the in crowd. Yes. And Tara and Anya and Spike and, and Jonathan and Andrew, they were the outsiders and they were getting picked on and they were getting the same treatment that Willow and Xander and Buffy were always so upset about in school. And you know, they became the outsiders and that's where a lot of other fan sympathies became to, um, came into the the picture. So, you know, for me as a Spike fan, I felt like I was the outsider and Spike was the outsider. And I, I felt bad about how they were treated. And I felt that the core three, the core quote unquote 
should have um, treated them better. Like as soon as Spike seemed like he wanted to have redemption, Mm -hmm. whether it was the truth or not, somebody should have been there for him. Somebody should have been helping him. Um, You know, Giles went through his ripper stage and at some point somebody Mm -hmm. must have reached out and said, Hey, you know, I know you want to do better with your life. Let's try it. And if he failed, he failed, but you gave him a chance. And then you had um, Willow being abusive to her girlfriend and taking her her memories away. And you had like just really horrible things that these poor people that were the outsiders should have done more for them. It's just, it, and that's the, you know, as you go through the seasons and the show becomes more complex and, and looking back at it now, it just, it's, it's hard for me to watch an episode and have sympathy for the three of them knowing that they didn't learn those lessons. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is exactly how I have felt. Um, the, the whole idea that the Scooby gang, Oh, which by the way, I forgot to mention, we get our second in the Inca mummy girl. We get our, or no, it was in school heart. We get our second instance of Willow, uh, Willow wearing a Scooby-Doo t-shirt. Um, anyways, uh, the Scooby gang, uh, the main three becoming the in crowd, their own sort of in crowd, and then excluding others, uh, as outsiders is a major issue that I have with the series going forward. (laughs) And the, uh, idea of redemption, which feels like something that is sort of uh, part and parcel of this series. It's like in the DNA of the series, I feel like. Um, or it certainly feels like the kind of thing that the show sets up as a possibility. I mean, that's Angel's whole shtick, right? Right. Who I think was a miserable failure at it most of the time. But mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but in this episode, in Reptile Boy, um, there's a great moment, there's a great conversation between Giles and Buffy where she is talking about, you know, I don't know, that you know what it's like to be a 16 year old girl and to uh, be a slayer. And um, she specifically says, you don't know what it's like to stake a vampire while having fuzzy feelings for one. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's, that's significant for me and possibly for you. I get the sense that we have very similar feelings on this, (laughs) but that is uh, significant for me because by the time this series and, and angel uh, run their course, we've seen, uh, multiple examples of um, vampires, demons, you know, various beasties, uh, either getting resold or otherwise saved, uh, not to mention the, the numerous examples we get of uh, demons and, and vampires that were never evil, evil to begin with, whatever. Yep. Um, and yet the main core group, oh, I they never really let go of their whole stake first and never bother to ask questions later attitude. So yeah. what I'm getting at is by the time both of these series run their course, it, it bothered me. I, I, I think a lot of us had sort of before the comics started coming out, we had our own and, and I never wrote fan fiction, but in my head I had my own fan fiction that I was writing of where the yeah. series would continue and what the characters would do following this. And one of my ideas for Spike was always that he has now uh, obviously regained his soul. He has now reached a certain level of redemption. He's obviously seen Angel for, for decades fighting that fight. And it's arguable that by the end of Angel, he's kind of, 
he's made a case for his redemption. Um, <laughs> the, we've, and we've seen so many examples of characters who were either evil at one point becoming saved somehow or redeeming themselves somehow, even Darla, um, yeah. that it seems disingenuous going forward from that point to just continue going out slaying vampires or slaying yes. monsters. And so I had this whole idea that Spike and Faye, like I, in my head, I had a road show <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, running where Spike and Faith and a few others would go around and their mission was not to slay vampires, but to save them. And sp right. in particular, I had this idea that Spike was going to go on a mission to save Drusilla the way he had been mm -hmm. saved. He was going to yep. get her soul back for her or whatever. This is a complete tangent that I've gone off on. I'm, I apologize well, to our listeners, but. One of the potential spinoffs was supposed to be um, Faith and Spike on a motorcycle. Um, um, I'd forgotten it, Spike was supposed to be involved. I remember that there was a Faith on a motorcycle idea. Yeah, it, it was the two of them. And um, we, we never really knew what like what the concept was going to be beyond a, a road trip with the two of them on a motorcycle. But, um, you know, one of, one of the things that. Um, I really enjoyed about the entire universe is that, you know, Buffy was definitely a, a black and white show. There was, there was mm -hmm. good and bad and there was, there was very little um, in between space for gray where angel was definitely built up to be a show all about the gray mm -hmm. where sometimes uh, very bad decisions were made and sometimes good decisions were made to let bad people go for mm -hmm. whatever reason. And, um, it, it was tough for me because I obviously, I, I love the characters on Buffy, um, but had a problem with the black and white. And I was not a fan of Angel, though I did like um, Cordelia and Wesley and everyone else on Angel. But I really enjoyed the gray. And one of the things when the two of them were on at the same time was that sometimes there would be an uh, and it was even when they were on two separate networks, where even though they weren't always the same writing team they would explore the exact same theme right. between the two shows in the same week mm -hmm. whether intentional or not and you would see the black and white solution on Buffy and you would see the gray solution on Angel mm -hmm. and if you were you were watching carefully enough you could see like what theme was kind of the, the common thread between the two um and and that was something about the universe that I really enjoyed was being able to see the same topic covered in two very different and complex ways. Now, that's a great take uh, you you have there where you enjoyed the opportunity to see both at, at the same time, essentially. Mm -hmm. I, I've said many times I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of Angel the series than I am of Buffy. I love, yes. I love Buffy. I love all the characters on the show, even the characters that I hate. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I, I would never give up having had Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And right. in its run of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I was never a huge fan of the character of Angel. Right. But I did I did watch Angel when he got his own spinoff. And yep. I grew to love the character of Angel. But primarily, it was my love of the Shades of Grey on that series. Right. So like that, is okay. that is exactly why I prefer Angel to Buffy. Um. And I, I thank you for framing it that way, for finding the appreciation of of seeing, for the brief period of time where both shows were running concurrently. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember 
viewing it this way. I don't remember saying, okay, I'll watch the black and white version on Buffy today, and then tomorrow night I'll watch the shades of gray version on Angel. But that is a fantastic observation to make. Um, now I almost I wish I could remember specific examples of it, and I'm sure they'll come to me after we're done talking. Um, but there, <laughs> like there, there were ten very stark, um, like it, it was in your face that this was the theme of the night. Uh huh. And as, as soon as we're off here, I'll remember them, and I will. I'll try to remember to Skype them. To you, you, you said so ten. Yes. So, so yeah. you, you're thinking of like specific. Uh, there examples? were more. Wow. They were very specific examples. Like, okay, okay today we're going to talk about, um, you know, teen pregnancy, and over here it's going to be abortion bad, and over here it's going to be well, there's this and there's this. Um, oh, so interesting. It, yeah. And it, obviously, it's not um, that topic. Yeah, yeah. Because we all know that, um, you know, that that had its that that was a topic that came up in several episodes um, in various ways, but never a specific yeah. um, real life version. But lots, there, there lots are of, lots of mystical pregnancies happened. Yes, lots of mystical pregnancies on there. Yeah. Um, but there, there are. Um, Quite a few examples of that. I think like Billy may have been one of them um, for Angel, and I'm trying to remember the, the episode that was on the same night. But I, I will find those and I will send them to you. But they, okay. the thematic um, threads that ran through the, the episodes within the same week, yeah. when you were looking for them, became very obvious. See now that I I almost regret as we're talking about this, I almost regret making the decision that I have with this podcast where we're going to run all the way through Buffy to the very end. And then I will pick up angel and run all the way through angel. Um, I've had a couple of people ask me if when, when we get to season three of Buffy and angel, the series starts running or is that right? Does it, it starts running. I yeah. guess it starts running in, does it start running in season three or season four? Anyway. Um, it's after, yeah, go ahead. Anyways, when it, uh, people have asked if I'm going to alternate episodes or whatever. Um, and I had considered that for a while. And that just, I don't know, that seems more work than, I'm, <laughs> than I want to put into it. So <laughs> I'm just going to do Buffy as a series from beginning to end, and then I'll do Angel. But I'm going to try and remember <laughs> this conversation and remember to... Uh, find a way of addressing the sort of thematic crossover between obviously there's li literal crossovers that happen, but uh, right. I'll try and remember to bring up the thematic crossovers. Yeah, and it, it would have been um, parallel to Buffy season four. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was the end of season three when he, when he yeah. leaves, but all right. Dang. But yeah, if you, if you do so much as just, um, you know, watch the angel, episode and then just look at the summary mm -hmm. um of the buffy episode i think you'll probably catch on okay. and see oh i see where that thread is that she's thinking about right all right dang i feel so i feel like i just spent a lot of words and we didn't talk very much about the episode. <laughs> well I, I, I was going to tell you about the fanfic in my head okay yeah um Mentioned yours, so I actually would love to see it developed into a series. But um, you know, an anthology was all the rage for a bit there, with um, you know Ryan Murphy and Tim Minear doing American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my my Spike 
slash Buffy series was that um, it would be an anthology where um, every season was an offshoot from the Victorian party that Spike comes to where he meets Cecily. <laughs> there, there's this one version where, you know, we saw where he becomes a vampire and he gets redeemed and all this stuff. But there's another one where he meets up, he sees Drusilla and then like is able to escape. And then suddenly he can't hide from the darkness any longer and becomes a watcher. <laughs> so that's one season. And changes um, his name to Randy. Then- <laughs> well, no, because he's he's now living in Victorian times and right, he's aging. Right. So that takes care of the fact that um, he's no longer the same age. Right, um, yeah. So he, he goes through that life. And then um, he has an, another version of his life where, you know, he his poetry in the future, um, he shanshoes and he becomes a songwriter <laughs> and travels on the road and um, with, you know, he there's this rock star that falls in love with him and he has to deal with the fact that this rock star is a vampire and evil. And is, uh, so through, okay, I'm this good person now and I save people, but there's this evil thing that's in love with me. So he kind of gets Buffy's perspective on that. Uh-huh. Um, and then in the end, we all find out it was part of this vengeance wish. <laughs> so, oh, nice. So it, kind of the final season ties it all together. But um, this, this I always like, thought this that is like, what if black- way, this is like what if Black Mirror was all about Spike? Yes, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I, I I love it. But it shows you know James's range, and uh-huh. it allows the character to age, and it's still in the universe, and these characters can still cross over that we know about, and uh, you know I just always thought that would be a really cool way for things to go. Awesome. Well, uh, someone out there, if there's a producer out there listening. Um, at the end of the show, I'll give you, we'll give you contact information. You can, uh, you can contact Teresa and get that series up and running. (laughs) Um, all right. So man, we're running, I'm, I'm, I'm babbling so much this episode. I apologize. Let's, uh, let's spit some verse. Let's uh, you are, let's spit some verse about reptile boy really quick. Um, I think it probably is the least of these three episodes, but bad done. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> it deserves to have some words uh, spilled yeah, about it. Um, uh, I, I I don't know what <laughs> can we say about this. So the the uh, the idea of fraternities at cult as as a cult. I mean, it's a little bit cliche at this point in 2018. It feels really played out. I think maybe even in '97, it might have felt a oh. little played out and on the nose. But considering the world that has been built up, like like the the themes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think it would have been glaring in its omission if the writers hadn't decided to tell this kind of story at some point. Yeah. It's it's um, just so obvious to have, uh, you know, ritualistic secretive pack mentality fraternities. Yes. And uh, what's interesting, um, most now when I see screenshots and watch this episode is James is now on a show called The Runaways. For Marvel, it's right. on Hulu, and on there, the parents have kind of a cult, and yeah. they are sacrificing, um, doing ceremonies and stuff in the basement in these long red robes. <laughs> so now I'm I'm seeing it from from that side of things, where it's the parents now instead of the fraternity, and uh, it, it's it's pretty, um, like you said, it's it's a little aged, but uh, 
we have Runaways is, is an older comic book, one that I hadn't read at the time, but I'm getting caught up on now. Mm-hmm. It's, and, it was great. It was great. Yeah, that's what I understand. And uh, they're they're reviving it with Rainbow Rowell, who's an amazing writer. So it, it'll be interesting to see yeah, how the, ori- the original happens. by Brian K. Vaughn uh, for listeners yes. at home. Brian K. Vaughn is an amazing writer. You need to read everything he does. <laughs> Yeah, I hadn't, I, I hadn't considered that uh, the the teenagers in this frat grow up to be the parents in <laughs> Runaways. That's hilarious. You never know. Yeah, yeah. It's all connected. Um, and he, this is uh, this is David Greenwald again, uh, developing ideas that he's going to carry forward into his role as the showrunner of Angel the series. So, I mean. I already mentioned the fact that I, I have to comment on how well he clearly knows his vampire characters like Angel and Darla and Spike and Drew. Um, but Angel the series is going to go on to deal with the notion of um, like giant corporate entities making deals with the devil, sometimes literally, often, usually literally, mm-hmm. um, which is... Um, one of the one of the subtexts, not really subtext, but one of the themes that goes on in this episode. I think it's crazy that, uh, in sharp contrast to like the real world authorities, um, paying, playing virtually no role at all in the day to day Sunnydale supernatural happenings. Um, we already talked about Police Chief Bob, but like, there's almost there's hardly ever any sort of real world repercussions of the crazy stuff that goes on, on Buffy. Mm-hmm. And yet in this episode, in stark contrast to that, um, we have, <clears throat> we have an entire fraternity and numerous corporate entities, uh, being tried, convicted and members committing suicide <laughs> after the sort of monster of the week shenanigans that we get here, despite the fact that this episode takes place on October 10th and the next episode that we're going to watch is Halloween. So presumably takes place three weeks later. Um, that's an awful lot of turning that the wheels of justice managed to squeeze into less than three weeks. (laughs) Yeah. Very rare occurrence. Um, one could say, um, never (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs) i mean not only does it happen which is uh, you know strange in its own right but it happens super fast (laughs) like in the in in real life that sort of legal drama would take a full season at least yes exactly time on buffy is very fluid Uh, this is true i suppose (laughs) um I mean, what else? To, I feel like I'm doing all the talking. What is there anything about this episode that you feel is um, worth discussing? Well, you know, one of the things that I, I gained greater appreciation for after um, the show was off the air was the character of Cordelia. Yes. And this might be a, a good time to bring that up because, um, you know, first season she is the in crowd and she is wants to be bringing Buffy into the fold until she realizes who Buffy is. And, um, you know, she treats Willow and Xander badly. And eventually there's, you know, relationship complexities that we learn. But once 
Cordelia is on Angel, we truly get a good idea of, um, you know, who she is and who she wants to be and a conscious decision to help versus um, kind of like a, I'm here and I'm bored. So it's something to do that's more interesting than talking to Harmony. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, here you have Cordelia kind of using Buffy to, to be at this party and it's still kind of Cordelia's way of building a friendship in a weird sort of way um, that it would have been nice at some point if that was something that we had seen on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, even when Cordelia was a reluctant person helping out, at least she was helping out. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of gain a greater appreciation for that when you go back and watch it. Yeah, I've been, uh, I, I've been surprised at how uh, sympathetic or, or whatever, you know, how approachable the character of Cordy is on this revisit. Like my memories of season one and season two Cordelia were that she was just the, the mean girl that you really wanted to be abducted every episode. <laughs> and it, and do, it, it doesn't feel like that on this rewatch. No, not at all. And I mean, even down to like, I, I thought the turning point in the character was when, um, you know, her, all of her money got taken away mm-hmm. and you had Xander like getting her the dress. Um, but really, even long before that, she may have been snarky about it. She may have been sitting in the back filing her nails and, and twiddling her thumbs, but she gave great ideas and she knocked down in her way some of the, the bad ideas. So she she had a, a much bigger role and has much more sympathy for me now than she did then. And I'm, I'm saying this from before I started working with Charisma. I had that switch. It's not something that has, has come <laughs> since we started working together, just so people know that. Um, but I, I've gained a much greater appreciation for the character. And I also have, I guess, gained a greater anger for um, for everything that happened to her character later on. And, uh, you know, I I really did come to, to care about the character on Angel and the, the way that that role um, kind of fell apart in season four uh, is very difficult to watch, that season four of Angel. And, um, and then getting on to season five when her character comes back, um, that... It, that's one of the most painful episodes for me to watch, especially knowing that um, she did not know that's what was going to happen to her character when she agreed to do it. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with everything you just said. Um, looking at my notes, see if there's anything else worth mentioning here. Oh, the, <laughs> I didn't realize this when I wrote the note, but apparently I have, apparently demons with M names. Uh, Makita. Get, get the best makeup effects. So I, on previous episodes, I've talked about how I think the makeup effects for the master and Moloch, <laughs> the internet demon, uh, were both, uh, in terms of physical makeup effects, were standouts. And then I think Makita in this, um, I mean, he's kind of a goofy phallic demon snake, but in close-up shots, that's actually a really impressive like prosthetic suit that he's wearing. Yes. <laughs> so certainly in terms of early season two, at this stage of the show, um, the three M's, the Master, Moloch, and Makita are 
the best makeup examples that I've noticed so far. And that uh, character, Makita, is um, played by actor Robin Atkin Downs. Yep. Who is one of the most prolific voice actors <laughs> out there. Like he's got, he's got, all, I think it's close to 400 credits, uh, yeah. voiceover credits on IMDb. It's insane. Any animated series or video game you can mention, he has probably provided at least one voice for. Yeah. And I've, I've met him several times back really? in the, the early Buffy days. Uh -huh. um, he went to a lot of the Buffy conventions as like a bonus guest, he would host um, some of the the VIP meet and greets and um, various events and do some of the MC work on stage. And he also played one of my actors on Babylon 5, um, uh -huh. which is really weird for me because um, all of my online fandom began with Babylon 5. And like my online username from when I started watching Buffy was because of my online name from Babylon 5 fandom. Nice. So going to my first Buffy fandom event and meeting a character from Babylon 5 <laughs> was, was very interesting. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, it's ironic that he has, he's so prolific as a voice actor, but he doesn't, he doesn't get to utter a line in this. <laughs> like he, he just growls. I think that's all he does. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting in so many ways that he, he doesn't get to utter a line. And also that, um, you know, sometimes they say he has a, a face for radio. In this case, he <laughs> has a face for TV. And not only is he not talking, but you also don't see his face. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> well, he's doing all right for himself, it looks like. Yeah, he, he absolutely is. Yeah. Um, so, man. Starting to run long, we need to wind this down. But uh, I would just say we we talked about we mentioned that Jonathan is in both episodes. I will have more to say about Jonathan as the story progresses. But this is the second that episode. One of the most prolific writers in the world, not just a actor with a very long list of credits, but now a writer who has done um, the book for the new chess musical. He's working on Oliver Twist for Disney. He did. The now, two Mock J movies. He hey, writes. Hey, hang, hang on a second. Hang on a second. He's he's. There's going to be okay. So isn't the chess musical? Isn't that where we got the song uh, "One Night in Bangkok"? It is performed by Anthony Stewart Hurd's brother. Yeah, you got it. The connections wow. out there are weird if you look for them. Wow, that's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Didn't okay. So he he's one. He's won two Emmys. I thought he had an Oscar. I guess not. I'm I'm completely wrong about that. I thought he had written an oh, Oscar I one. He, I think um why why do I want to I know he got the Emmys. He did a, a couple of political um, movies for HBO, so I know he got the Emmys. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't think it was him specifically, but it was something he worked on, got the Oscar. Okay, yeah. Anyways, so Danny Strong is amazing. And um it's I would, I would say it's always great. It's great anytime Jonathan gets to show up. Um, but at this point, it's really not because all Jonathan gets to do is show up and be tortured. Uh, he finally gets a name. At least we get to know his name. We learn he's not just, yep. he's not just background victim in this yeah. episode. On top of that, he, he was actually in the original pilot. Oh, yeah? And he auditioned for the role of Xander. Oh, man. Now, I yeah. love, I love Nicholas Brendan. I love Nicholas Brendan. It's difficult to imagine anybody else playing Xander, but 
I, I can't help but pine for a world where Jonathan or, or Danny Strong w- got to be like front and center in every episode. Yes. <laughs> Superstar so. every day. Yes. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, so I, speaking of uh, Nikki, one more thing I want to say. Now, this, yes. this may be weird for you since you work on, on almost a daily basis with Nicholas Brendan. But I have a very strange comment to make. Xander reminds me of Kylo Ren. Yes. <laughs> so this, uh, there are people out there right now going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> what, I, <laughs> what I mean by that is that both Nicholas Brendan and Adam Driver, who portrays Kylo Ren in the, the new Star Wars trilogy, when they're dressed a certain way, they look like very skinny and nerdy and sort of nebbish. Um, but as clearly has been evidenced um, <laughs> for both actors at this point, strip them down, like take their shirts off and oil them up a little bit. And they both <laughs> they both look surprisingly like like almost unnaturally beefy and muscular. Yes, they are very attractive gentlemen, <laughs> but is, you would never know it under a shirt. Yes, it's so weird. Yeah. So I, I bring that up because in this episode, we get to see uh, frat douche Xander. Like he, yeah. when he sneaks into the fraternity, the frat party, and he's wearing his dockers and his polo shirt and everything, he looks, he looks nerdy. It, he was 26 at the time this episode was filmed, I believe. I think my yeah. math works there. Um, you got it. But he looks young he looks maybe not quite 16 and a half which i think is what he's supposed to be at that point but he certainly looks young dressed that way and he looks like a a a young nerd who snuck into a frat party but then this is like the second or third example on the series where we get to see him without his shirt on and you're like holy crap nikki is ripped yeah you know he he was um an athlete prior to buffy so he had that athlete mindset he worked out every day and he practiced every day and he, you know, from baseball practice and, and weightlifting and everything else. So that was definitely, um, something that they tried to minimize on the show because it, it completely changed how you perceive the character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was intimidated. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So anyways, anything else that you want to say about any of these episodes just you know for those who paused the series and just listened to us and paused the the podcast and watched all of the episodes (laughs) and came back to it kudos on you um it would be great in my mind to be able to watch Buffy again fresh um Mm. it, it was an amazing experience the first time around yeah and to, to have the possibility, uh, if, if there were mind wipes, <laughs> one mind wipe I think I would wish for is to forget everything I knew and learned the first time around, be able to see it all oh. again fresh. Oh, man. That opens the, uh, a subject for another episode, but that opens yes, the whole yeah. concept of would we view, if you had never seen Buffy before, yeah. And you were watching it in today's climate. Would the show yeah. mean the same thing? That's a fascinating discussion. And I think a lot of that is would I still remember my life and my memories and what I've been through or would all of that be gone too? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's an entire spinoff podcast. Damn. Now I have to do a whole other show. 
Oh darn. Man. Okay. I can't even can't even think about that. So, um, I was I was going to mention we got our in spike and a spike hard in in, no. in school hard. That's the the porn parody. In uh, school hard, we got our very first example of uh, Williams' bloody awful poetry. Yes. <laughs> when he does fee fi fo fum, I smell the blood of a nice ripe girl. I was like, oh come on, yeah. you could have finished that off better than that, man. <laughs> Anyways, Teresa, thank you so much uh, for joining me and for uh, completely geeking out about Spike with me. This has been a joy. I'm happy to do it anytime. Um, I, I'm, I don't have the schedule open in front of me, but I'm almost positive that we've got you down for future episodes as well. So, And uh, if not, you know how to reach me. Let me know if there are any future <laughs> episodes you want to talk about. I will definitely about. be looking forward to it. Uh, in the meantime, I always give my guests an opportunity to uh, pimp their own stuff or to um, open themselves up to online stalking since nothing bad ever comes from that. So uh, how can the people at home find you or your wares? Yes. So uh, I guess the longest running of all of my online presence would be to find at Support Spike on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, where you will see lots of things related to Spike and James Marsters. Um, also, if you wanted to give it a try, Vidiots um, is a web series that I mentioned earlier that stars James Marsters and his friend Mark Devine. It is now uh, available. The first four episodes are free on Vimeo. If you go to vidiotsonline.com and you check out Watch Now, you can take a look at some of those. You'll see some behind the scenes uh, shenanigans at conventions. And then James geeking out over his love of all things video game. Um, and my best and funniest friend, Mark Devine, being uh I guess you could say the straight man to James Marsters, but in reality, um, a lot of hysterical hijinks and you, I promise, will enjoy what you see. Um, and then also, if you are in need of any Buffy guests for your upcoming events, <laughs> get in touch with me uh, online. If you go to Eyelash Out Entertainment on Facebook or email Teresa at eyelashout.net, you can get in touch with me and I will let you know um, the amazing talents that I have available to to stop by and uh, amuse all of your your guests. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll include links to all that in the show notes as well. So uh, if you're listening and you, you go to uh, my website, <laughs> you can find links to all of that stuff. But uh, thank you again, Teresa. Uh, and thank you at home for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at that website, conswithdead.com, um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Uh, there have been uh, one or two other Buffy podcasts in the world before this, believe it or not. So uh, any kind words that you could spare would really help us stand out from that crowd. Uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conswithdead. Uh, my next conversation is going to be with David Bushman and Arthur Smith, uh, TV curators at the Paley Center for Media in New York City. 
and authors of Buffy the Vampire Slayer FAQ, All That's Left to Know About Sunnydale's Slayer of Vampires, Demons, and Other Forces of Darkness. Wow, that's a that's a long title. Uh, so I'm very excited to talk with them, though. We're going to be discussing episodes 206, Halloween, 207, Lie to Me, which I feel like is a biggie, and 208, The Dark Ages. So until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Hello. Is it me you can't say hello? Hello. Say hello Is it me you're saying Oh hell no